Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1500, everyone, more or less, conceived of the world in religious terms. It was religion that determined the rhythm of people's everyday lives. It framed the events of their year, and it preoccupied thought. In the 16th century, of course, there was a seismic change across Europe in the nature of that thought. We call it the Reformation. What people believed was jolted and disturbed, chiefly what they believed about how to be made right with God and what was required of them to receive salvation, the promise of a life of eternal blessing with God after death, but also a whole host of other subsidiary beliefs, like what they thought actually happened in the most holy moment of a church service, the Mass. Traditionally, it had always been thought that the bread and wine were mystically transubstantiated, in other words, actually became the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In some ways, there was surprising continuity between Roman Catholicism and the radical breakaway movement by Martin Luther that eventually became known as Protestantism. But points of theology that we might today, in our ignorance, think minor, obscure or even meaningless were anything but. Religious beliefs were literally life and death issues in early modern Europe. So I thought it would be helpful to think about what people actually believed How can we understand the theology of the late medieval Roman Catholic Church and the nature of Luther's theological challenge to it? What exactly was the Reformation about? To guide us through these finer points, I am delighted to welcome back to Not Just the Tudors, Professor Alec Ryrie. Alec is Professor of the History of Christianity at Durham University and Professor of Divinity at Gresham College London. A Fellow of the British Academy, Professor Ryrie works on the history of the Reformation and Protestantism more generally. He's the author of numerous journal articles and chapters and eight books, including Protestants, the Radicals Who Made the Modern World. I couldn't think of anyone better placed to explain to us this complex and fascinating set of ideas. Professor Ryrie, Alec, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Not Just the Tudors. This is so kind of you. There was such a demand to hear more of you last time you came onto the podcast because you explained things so well and so clearly. And I'm completely delighted that you're back to give us 
I started for 10 on Reformation theology. Thanks very much for having me back. So I thought we could begin, though there is no real place to begin, you know, I'm going to choose a place to begin, which is the late medieval Catholic Church, the end of the 15th century, perhaps. And I guess I'm thinking across Europe rather than just specifically England. Could we drill into what late medieval Catholics believed in all sorts of ways? Perhaps we could start by thinking about their theology of salvation. Okay, well, if we're going to start with the theology of salvation, which I think is the right place to start, we need to start back before the 15th century. Arguably, you have to go back to the first century or even beyond that to the Jewish and Greek roots of Christianity. But I think a reasonable place to begin is with Augustine of Hippo in the early 5th century, who is the dominant theological figure of the whole Western tradition. In some ways, everything that's happened in Western Christianity since then has been a series of footnotes to Augustine. He's the one who absolutely sets the agenda. He's one of the main reasons why when Western Christians, Catholics, Protestants or whatever, try to sit down and talk to their Eastern Orthodox brethren, they usually find themselves absolutely talking at cross purposes and finding each other's religion profoundly alien. Because Augustine, who is the great Latin father of the church, has such a powerful and distinctive set of ideas that takes Western Christianity in a particular direction. A lot of his ideas about salvation are formed in this moment in the late Roman period when Christianity has gone from being a subversive, underground, voluntary religion, a gathered community that sees itself as being countercultural, to very suddenly being a normative, inclusive community, inclusive in the sense of moving towards being a compulsory community, one into which you're born and which is assumed is going to embrace the whole of society. And that brings a series of questions about salvation to the fore, which are going to rumble on until the point that they explode in the Reformation era. And the question is one which St. Paul is talking about in the first century at great detail, sometimes very explicitly and sometimes with a frustrating degree of imprecision as far as later theologians are concerned which is how these two great virtues of faith and charity relate to one another. Are you saved by God, by his activity, by what God has done through assuming human form, by becoming incarnate, by becoming human, by dying as a human being and by being raised to life again? So is it God's action that saves us or do we as human beings save ourselves? Are we saved by our own activity, by conforming ourselves to God's will? In the early centuries of the church, the tension between those two views is pretty easy to resolve because faith and charity so much go together by the act of choosing to join this persecuted community. Your faith is clear and your commitment to action is also clear. So there's not that much of a tension between them. But once you've got an established church, once everybody's a Christian, once everybody can put their hands up and say the creed, this becomes a real problem because lots of these people are plainly not in any way exemplary Christians, not the sorts of people who ought to be saved just because they're saying the right words. And so you have a series of folks of whom the most famous becomes a British monk named Pelagius, 
we've got almost none of his own writings, only what his enemies quote against him in the way of these things, who argues that, yes, you need to believe, but ultimately it is your ability to conform yourself to the example that Christ gives you that allows you to be saved. He believes in human perfectibility, or so it appears, that we can actually attain to divine virtues, and salvation is to be found in that way. He himself, by all accounts, was a man of exemplary virtue. This is the sort of thing that you hear being advanced by monks, by people who've devoted themselves to virtuous living. But Augustine is not that sort of man. He has had a long and very checkered career. He talks in great detail about sinful parts of his life, some things which he's much more exercised about than we might be, but nevertheless. And he comes to the conclusion that sin is not something that you can simply shrug off and leave behind you by effort. It's absolutely ingrained into the human condition. And this is what leads to the formulation of the doctrine, which we call original sin, which comes to be one of the defining features of Western Christian theology. It's not there in the same sense in the East. So for him, sin is not just something that some people are guilty of, and that simply shows they've not been trying hard to leave it behind. It's absolutely a pervasive feature of the human condition. And so he argues that if you're trying to attain divine stature, trying to attain salvation by virtue, you will fail. And all you'll achieve is managing to condemn yourself with your own pride in your own imagined virtues. And as far as the Western church is concerned, he absolutely wins this argument. Pelagianism becomes the name of a heresy. It's a dirty word. So it is an absolutely standard orthodoxy throughout the later part of the Middle Ages and through the Reformation on all sides that fundamentally, if Christians are to be saved, they're to be saved by faith. It's by the action of Christ that by faith, God's grace is what underpins it. So you'll sometimes hear it said that the dispute in the Reformation is between salvation by faith versus salvation by works. That's not the case. Nobody believes in salvation by works. What's distinctive about the view that Martin Luther ends up taking, which becomes unexpectedly very persuasive to an awful lot of people, is he is arguing, no, you are saved by faith and by grace alone. It's not the emphasis and the importance of faith and grace. Everyone believes in that, but the exclusion of any kind of cooperative human activity as a part of it. The classic structure of late medieval Catholic theology sees God's grace, Christ's sacrifice as fundamental, and the faith that we place in it as fundamental, but salvation also including an element of human cooperation, at the very least of willingness to receive that gift. So there's a degree of human agency still left in it. The Protestants come to argue that is unacceptable and know that salvation by faith must mean salvation by faith alone. Would it be fair to say that late medieval Catholics then accept God's offer of grace by their performance of good works of charity? Yes, I hesitate because the theological niceties here become very finely contested. And it's important to understand there is not an absolutely settled orthodoxy on this question in the late medieval church. These issues are live and are debated within a broad set of commonly understood parameters. 
but the Western Church has not formally declared an orthodoxy on this point, and it won't do so until the sixth session of the Council of Trent in the late 1540s. And even then, it leaves a certain amount of room for manoeuvre. But broadly speaking, the consensus is, yes, God's action is primary, but the individual believer can attach God's grace to themselves by their actions, by their performance of good works. And this is not simply a matter of the individual virtues of the particular believer. It's not a matter about whether you are giving alms to the poor or whatever. It's about your ability to share those good works with others, in particular with the church as a whole, which a large part of the way the church and its purpose The reason that Christ didn't simply leave a set of instructions, but created this community, this institution, it's understood, is because the church exists to help people towards their salvation. It's a kind of mutual support society. And it does so by its members praying for one another. And above all, and this is maybe the second kind of big theological theme to come to, through the celebration of the sacraments which are the means by which grace comes to be attached to the lives of individual believers. So explain for us, if you would, then what the sacraments were. And if one is preeminent, it would be the Mass and what Catholics at that time understood to be happening when the Mass was performed. Okay, so a sacrament in the classic definition, is a visible sign of an invisible grace. So it's a physical outward activity that is understood to have been divinely ordained or mandated, and which comes with the promise that when it is performed appropriately, that God will bestow grace on those for whom or by whom it's being performed. The word is applied quite loosely in the early years of Christianity to a whole range of physical activity that's part of worship. You can have that term applied to it, such as the washing of feet by the penitent on Monday Thursday, that sort of thing, or by clergy. But by the high middle ages, this list has been formalized into seven sacraments, which are themselves divided into three major sacraments, which are the ones that are seen as normally necessary for salvation for every individual, and minor sacraments such as ordination or matrimony, which there's no obligation for an individual to go through. The three major sacraments, which are the ones worth thinking about, are baptism and penance and the Eucharist. The Eucharist, the Mass, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, a number of different names for the same rite, and none of those names are uncontested. Baptism, in some ways, is the most fundamental, because in standard Catholic theology, baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. So arguably, that's the most important. Baptism is understood to wipe away that stain of original sin, so the guilt of inherited sin that you get simply by being human, by being descended from Adam and Eve, that stain can be wiped away by baptism, which is why the assumption is that an infant who dies after being baptized, but before being old enough to be culpable of sin in their own right, will be saved, which during an era of such high infant mortality is a very significant point. It's one of the reasons why babies are baptized 
as soon as possible after birth, or even in the case of a child whose life is despaired of and sometimes baptized even before they're fully born. But baptism only wipes out the stain of sins that you have committed up to the point of being baptized, those that you've inherited, or if you're baptized later in life, those that you've committed up to that point. So that's great, but unless you're baptized on your deathbed, it doesn't help you with the sins that you are continuing to commit. And so the standard approach for that is what Jerome calls the second plank of our salvation to rescue us from the shipwreck of our souls, which is the sacrament of penance, of formally confessing your sins to a priest, being allocated penance to perform penitential acts, to free yourself of the stain of sin, and then to receive formal absolution from the priest who's empowered to declare you free of the guilt and of the penalty of sin. In some ways, that system works perfectly clearly, and there's a sense in which the Christian life consists of this kind of merry-go-round, in which you are continually sinning and then confessing your sins, being absolved and then confessing new sins. And on the crudest version of this, your salvation depends on where you are when the music stops. If you manage to die at a point where you've confessed your sins and been absolved, then you're saved and you go to heaven. And if not, you die still guilty of sin, you go to hell. So to go back to that question about agency, the agency of the human then is in those penitential acts. It's in the penitential acts, but most importantly, it's in the committing of the sins in the first place. And so if you can minimize or indeed avoid the commission of fresh sins, then you're in a much better position. This is a structure in which it is believed, at least in principle, that you can enumerate and confess all of your sins. That sin in that sense is accountable. You can look back and say, okay, I'll go through my list of the seven deadly sins, which are there as a kind of aid memoir of what sins you might have committed. And yes, I was angry when somebody burnt the toast this morning and so forth. And you can list them out and get a complete run of them. And this is one of the things that for many later theologians from the 14th, 15th century onwards, comes to seem increasingly untenable. The idea that you should be able to exhaustively list and enumerate your sins and be confident that you've got them all. It doesn't really seem to fit with the sense of a comprehensive understanding of original sin as a pervasive feature of human life. Am I right in thinking that there is a tension here between a sense of believing that human perfectibility is impossible and yet also believing that humans can at least move towards perfection after baptism. I think that's a really good way of putting it, that in some ways the whole argument about salvation in the Reformation and post-Reformation period is about playing out that tension. Because I think most thinking Christians in this time and place know various things, but the things they know are contradictory. They know that God is absolutely sovereign, and therefore that salvation must ultimately be God's initiative, that people can't override God's will or change his mind or anything of that sort. They also know that original sin is a pervasive fact. The Reformation is not an argument about the reality of original sin. That conviction that human beings are profoundly corrupt, suffer from this pervasive concupiscence, this tendency towards evil, 
that is a universally accepted truth across all sides of the debate. Luther thinks that, Ignatius Loyola thinks that. And yet they also do not want, most of them, to follow those arguments through to their most radical and extreme implication, which is to say that human beings are utterly powerless and that human initiative and virtue has no place. Some Protestants are sometimes accused of having done this, and some of them do come close to it, but I think even they would argue that's not the case. And I think in most cases, the argument is one that pretty much holds together. So they still want to leave a place for moral effort and for human agency. The argument comes to be about where that fits into the sequence of salvation. And we need to get a tiny bit technical here about some of the terminology. When St. Paul talks about this, and this is a piece of terminology that gets picked up and becomes part of the standard Christian way of thinking about this. He talks about a phenomenon which he calls justification, as we translate it into English, the process of being made just, of being turned from a sinner into a righteous person. And in medieval theology, this also comes to be spoken of as sanctification, as being made holy. And for most medieval theologians, the normal consensus in medieval theology, and indeed in Augustine, is that justification and sanctification are more or less the same thing, that these are processes that begin at or even before the moment of conversion, when God calls the sinner to repentance, and then proceed through your life as you progress towards holiness. And in the most developed forms of medieval thought, it's one that's incomplete at death and for most people, and you complete that process of sanctification in purgatory when you work off the remaining guilt of the sins that you have outstanding. What Martin Luther does, and this is what makes his theological insight so radical, is to separate these two things, justification and sanctification, from each other. So he says justification is a simple decree from God who says, I am going to decide by my own initiative, by virtue of my sacrifice, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, that this person, this human being, this sinner, is to be regarded as just. It's a decree. In a sense, it's false, because the person is not at that point just. It is simply that God is stating his willingness to see the human being in that way, not because of their own virtues, they don't have any, but because of Christ's. It is in that sense a gift, and a gift in the purest sense, an entirely undeserved gift given wholly of God's initiative. And crucially, a gift which the recipient does not even have to do anything to receive. It's received by faith, but the faith itself is the first gift through which it's received. So at that point, you as the sinner are what Luther calls simul justus et peccato. You are simultaneously justified and a sinner. You are both things at once. You're justified in the eyes of God, but in reality, although both things are real, you are also still a sinner. And sanctification then for him becomes the slow, lifelong process by which that contradiction is resolved, which again is something that's incomplete at death. So moral effort 
is hugely important. Good works are hugely important in the Lutheran scheme, but you are not saved by your moral effort. Rather, you carry out moral effort because you have been saved. Because God has made this decree, you are then filled with gratitude, but also shame because you recognize how the reality of your life falls short of the righteousness with which you've been clothed. And so you work and you are also given the grace to work to bring yourself to that level. So good works continue to be hugely important. Your agency is important. In some ways, your agency only becomes possible at this point, because up till then, you were enslaved to sin. You couldn't do good works, no matter how hard you try, because they would always be contaminated with your sinful intentions in one way or another. Apart from anything else, you might be thinking, oh, if I do these good works, maybe I'll persuade God to save me. And so you're not doing good works at all, as Luther would say. You're simply trying to bargain with God. I think the point in its own terms is a very powerful one, that good works done in order to save yourself are not truly good works. That's simply enlightened self-interest. That truly good works are ones that are done in gratitude for your salvation. In the sense that you, as, as he would say, you don't obey your parents in order to make them love you. You obey your parents because you love them, that you actually want to do so. It's only then that your obedience becomes real rather than grudging. So that's the way that Luther finds his way through this. But it's important to say that for a lot of others, including maybe most importantly Luther's great debating partner and antagonist Erasmus, the final steps he takes there to separate sanctification from justification, to separate the process of actually performing good works from the process of being saved, this is appalling. He thinks this is a license to moral anarchy, that you're effectively saying to people, no, you can be saved regardless of how you behave, which is not what Luther's saying, but you can see the point. It's certainly the case that if you as an ordinary believer are looking for the theological structure that is going to go easier on you, that if you are not inclined to a heroic degree of moral effort and are just looking for the religion that's going to let you bump along and not worry too much about your sins, then Lutheranism's probably it, because then you can get your salvation in the bag first and only worry about moral effort afterwards once you've been saved. Whereas if you're Catholic, then your salvation is always in question. And you can't be certain of your salvation as long as you live, because you may always relapse back into sin. How interesting, because the issue which sparks Luther's rebellion, as it were, seems to be precisely around the problem of being able to buy your salvation, the question of indulgences. So you can imagine Luther putting it exactly the opposite way and saying, no, that's where you can be told that you can buy it in that particular type of church, in the Roman Catholic Church as it was until that point. Yeah, I mean, I think this is right. Both traditions are offering certainty of one kind or another, but the kinds of certainty that they both offer end up being repulsive to the other. For the Protestants, and Luther comes to this very early on, and it remains a recurrent feature of Protestant theology amongst both 
Lutherans and Reformed Calvinistic Protestants. The assumption is that it's possible to be assured of your salvation. This idea of assurance becomes very important to them. And the reason you can be certain that you've been saved, and this is something that Catholics looks like the most appalling pride and presumption, these people going around saying, I know I've been saved. But they are saying that they know they've been saved, not because they are confident of their own virtues, but because they know that their salvation has got nothing to do with their own virtues. It's to do with God, that it's dependence on God's promise as an absolute dependable certainty, rather than anything that they as individuals or that the church as an institution or that anything in the created order has done. It's dependent on the rock of the word and of the will of God and on the reliability of Christ's sacrifice. And that assurance is something that is encountered inwardly. It is granted to the believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that is felt. The emotional nature of this experience, I think, is important. That comes to be a problem once you start to institutionalize this, because there's lots of people who find themselves not having the right kind of emotional experience. And lots of Protestant literature starts trying to develop ways of understanding this and making it work pastorally. But Luther has had that experience personally, and many others have it following him, of saying, I'm not going to depend for my peace of mind, for my assurance of salvation, on all these various things that I do and that the church does for me, because I feel that every time I do this, I'm leaning on a splintered staff, which simply stabs my hand, that this turns out to be a false assurance. I'm going to lean simply on my faith, which I actually believe to have itself been a gift from God in what God is doing. Whereas Catholics are also wanting to offer certainty, to offer assurance to believers, but are getting there by a different route. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis, and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we talk about Catholic assurance, I've just realized that we've had this entire conversation without saying what we mean by salvation. What do we mean when we say a Protestant thought they were saved or a, a late medieval Catholic thought they were saved? Okay, well, the two things are slightly different. Most obviously, we're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about what happens to the soul after death. And there's a sub-debate about whether this is something that happens immediately or at the end of time, or there's an intermediate stage, but let's not go there. The idea is that the ultimate destination of all human souls is either heaven or hell, heaven being eternal union with God, the beatific vision, the vision of the saints, eternal bliss, and whether that's eternal or everlasting, is it timely or timeless, is another issue which gets debated, but it's clearly a good thing. It's what Christians see as the ultimate good of union with God. Or there is hell, which is eternal separation from God, which is usually portrayed in terms of eternal torment and the particular agency of not simply the individual damned soul, but also of demons and ultimately of the great fallen angel Satan, who are also eternally tormented, but spend eternity tormenting others too. And this can be imagined with you know extraordinary range and creativity as Dante famously does but the core of it and Dante who offers everything ranging from some extraordinarily creative torments through to limbo the place of peace and quiet but nevertheless eternal separation from God that remains the central point so heaven is salvation hell is damnation for Catholics there's also an anteroom of heaven which is called purgatory, which is where those who are destined for salvation, who will ultimately be saved, go to work off their remaining culpability for many years, for many centuries after their death, before that process of sanctification 
can be completed before they can be made truly holy for admission to heaven. Protestants reject the notion of purgatory because they insist on this idea of justification as a single decree that God has declared that justified sinners are righteous in his sight. They're admitted to heaven immediately upon their death. But that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. There are further ramifications of this. And in particular, there's a question of whether these two categories of salvation and damnation actually bleed into this life. To what extent you as a living person can taste heaven or hell, whichever one you may ultimately be destined for. Uh, That's very interesting. And I mean, people might take this for granted, but it is interesting that the question of salvation is focused on what happens after this life. It absolutely It may bleed into the present life, but it's really thinking about a final destination. Yeah, this is a very otherworldly religion. I think Christianity has probably always had that focus. I think it's fair to say that medieval Western Christianity is more focused on death and on what follows it, perhaps than any other form of Christianity has ever been. This is a profoundly otherworldly tradition. And that sense of the immediacy of death and of the dead as parts of the Christian community who are gone but very much not forgotten is a hugely important part of the late medieval worldview. And it's often been said, and I think there's real truth in this, that one of the things that the Protestant Reformation does is to cut that sense of a connection between the living and the dead. Because the dead are no longer in purgatory, needing to be sped through it by the prayers and the sacraments of the church, they are no longer in need of anything that the living can give them. And so that sense of an immediate connection with the departed souls is one that's weakened, not completely broken. You were mentioning that Catholics also had a sense of assurance. Should we pick up on that? Indeed. This is cycling back to something we were talking about a little while ago with the sacraments. Because for Catholics, the way that you attain assurance of grace is not by something that you feel, but by confidence in the ministry of the church, this institution founded by Christ himself, whose leadership has been handed on directly from bishop to bishop, from the apostles. That direct descent and divinely ordained authority is profoundly important for the way that the church sees itself. This is not a religious club of people who have decided to get together and work out what they think. This is directly ordained by God himself and following his order. So the sacraments that it provides are means of grace in which a sinner who knows themselves to be sinful, who knows everything they are is corrupt, but you can be confident in the power of the sacraments because they don't depend on your virtues or even on the virtues of the priest who's celebrating. These are direct actions of God. We talked about baptism, we talked about penance, but this brings us back above all to the great, the central sacrament of the Mass. As people will know, this goes back to the narrative in the Gospels that Christ at the Last Supper, a matter of hours before his death, gives bread and wine to his disciples and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he refers to them as the new covenant and tells his disciples to do this. And it's not 100% clear what this is in remembrance of him. We know that Christian communities are reenacting 
this and are telling that story from the first generation onwards, that sense of an intense holiness focused around this rite of Christ's immediate presence in it is very strong. The process by which more and more dramatic theological meanings are attached to this rite as we go on through the later first and into the second millennium, I think is best to see as a kind of pious process, but one by which people are wanting to say the most remarkable things about this in order to match the emotional significance that they have found in it. So making these extraordinary statements about it is almost in itself a devotional act. It's an act of worship. But so where we've got to by the doctrine of transubstantiation that's, that's formulated in the early 13th century and which has become established thereafter, says that when Christ said, this is my body, he meant exactly what he said. This is literally true. And so when this rite is performed, when this meal is reenacted, the bread and the wine are literally physically transformed into the actual human body and blood of Christ. They're transformed, that is, in their substance, in what we might call their essence, while retaining the outward appearance of bread and wine, which you might think stretches credulity. You're saying that this miracle takes place everywhere in every Christian church all the time and is completely undetectable. And they know that this stretches credulity. They revel in the fact that it stretches credulity, that this is one of the things that faith demands of the believer. But in itself, swapping bread for body can just look like a kind of gruesome conjuring trick. But it has a point. The point is that Christ's sacrifice, the great sacrifice, which redeems us from sin, which everybody believes redeems us from sin, by that means, if his body is brought here now to this church on this altar, then the power of that sacrifice is also brought to bear in this church on this altar for these people gathered to witness, sometimes to participate in this celebration. It brings the power of that sacrifice to bear for you as an individual believer. So if the question is, where do you find assurance? That is where you find assurance in the fact that Christ himself, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is laying down his life once and for all. It's something that only happens once, but that once and for all unique sacrifice is brought here and is made immediately present and applicable to you. So you may not want to depend on your own virtues or your own feelings, but you can depend on that. That's what you can be certain of. Unless, of course, you are Luther or one of the Protestants and you say, but that's not actually what's happening. This is a memorial. That when he said, do this in remembrance of me, he was simply saying you should carry this right out as a way of remembering. That's what Luther's great antagonist Zwingli thinks. What makes the Catholic view distinct and what all Protestants reject is this idea that Christ's unique sacrifice is in some sense being represented or reenacted, brought to bear in this point through the means of transubstantiation, of his literal physical body and blood being made present. This touches also on the question of authority, because I remember McCulloch's phrase, the making of God on a table has to be done by 
somebody, as it were. You've got the priests enacting that, and you've got as you've already outlined the bishops, the process of passing down from one to another, from one pope to another, the authority vested in Peter. How is Luther thinking about authority and where authority is found by contrast to Catholics in the early 16th century? The traditional way of thinking about authority is, yes, something that passes down a chain. It's very important to be clear that this is the authority of God. Who is able to claim that right to speak for God, if anybody? And the church does so on the basis of this descent from Peter and so forth, which is why, in a sense, that process of the making of God on the table is done through the priest, but it's not done by the priest. The priest is the weak, infallible human agent who says the prayers, who asks God to perform this miracle, but it's God who does it. So the sacraments, all of them are God's action. This is one of the reasons why some of the sacraments, such as baptism, can be performed by any Christian. It's quite often performed by women. Midwives will baptize babies who are in danger of death. The sacrament of marriage is, although sometimes the church seems to forget this, but strictly speaking, it is performed by the couple rather than by the priest, who is only a witness to the sacrament. It's the husband and wife who, who celebrate the sacrament. And the reason it's possible for ordinary sinful lay people to do it is because it's actually God who's doing these things rather than them. So there's a well-developed understanding in the medieval church of how authority works, that ultimately it is expressed through the highest form of authority is that articulated by a general council of the church, which is the only way that an infallible pronouncement of doctrine can be made. As we now know, there's a doctrine of papal infallibility, but that's one that's only formulated in the 19th century. And it's one that ultimately is decreed by a council. So in a sense, the Pope is only infallible because an infallible council has said he is. That's the kind of crowning form of authority. That authority is the authority to transmit and interpret the deposit of truth that they once received, which above all is the deposit of scripture. But goes beyond that to also be the various unwritten traditions transmitted directly from the apostles, such as the example that's always given is a worshipping on a Sunday, observing a Sunday Sabbath rather than a Saturday one, which is nowhere stipulated in the New Testament. So that all works. It's internally coherent. The problem is there are times when it comes to strain credibility simply because the behaviour of the church as an institution, and in particular in the later 15th century of the papacy as an institution, does not seem to match up to the description of this as a divinely ordained institution, that if this is the church that has been founded by God, then it doesn't behave that way. And so that sense of the moral authority of the church having been vitiated by the series of scandals and apparent self-interest that it's been showing is what makes it possible for a series of reformers, with a small r, to be challenging aspects of the church's settlement and saying, no, we should be changing this, we should be bringing things back. Of course, that's been something that's happened right through the Middle Ages, to be returning to the original deposit of the faith as a sort of normal cycle. But especially with the, the invention of printing with movable type in the mid-15th century, the much more widespread circulation of Bibles after that, it starts to be possible to conceive of the Bible, of Scripture, not 
simply as the most important of the deposits of the faith which the church has transmitted to us, but as something distinct from the church and indeed a yardstick against which the church can be judged. And Luther, as himself a biblical scholar, is one of those who is starting to take that view. There are others who are saying, no, we should simplify. We should go back to the Bible to get rid of all this other stuff and focus our religion back in on this core source. That's orthodox. What Luther is saying is, no, we should use the Bible, if necessary, as a way of judging the church. And if we are forced to choose between the authority of the church and what the Bible plainly says, what his conscience guided by God, by which he reads with that same degree of inward assurance, if what scripture as he reads it says contradicts what the church says, then he reaches this point. And I mean, this is arguably the kind of the key breach, which we now call the Reformation, of saying, no, in that case, the Bible is right and the church is wrong. And it's that willingness to assert the perspicuity of scripture, as they would say, the fact that scripture's meaning can be self-evident through the witness of the Spirit to the redeemed and believing Christian. You do not need the church authoritatively to tell you what it means. And if the church authoritatively tells you what it means, they may well be wrong. And that is what's happening in the kind of catalytic issue around indulgences, to put it crudely, is that Luther is recognising that there is a wrong being done here, and therefore if this wrong is being done and you have to choose who is right, the Bible or the church saying this thing that is not correct, then we choose the Bible, the supreme authority is biblical. That's where he gets to, but it's important to realise he doesn't start that. That the dispute about indulgences begins as a dispute kind of around the edges of the doctrine of salvation. There's lots of thoroughly orthodox believers, people in the hierarchy who think that the indulgence trade is a bit iffy. An indulgence is, to put it simply, I suppose, a certificate of time off in purgatory. Yes, it's a preemptive declaration of grace bestowed on God's behalf by the church, which has received the authority to do so, allowing some of the penalty of sin to be remitted without having to perform penances for them in this life or in purgatory. And that initially is given in recognition of various kinds of extraordinary service, and then you know, it's considerable demand for these things. The service that is required for them is reduced, and ultimately it's possible to be given such a grant in recognition of a gift to the church, which effectively means that they're for sale. It does not mean that salvation is for sale, but it looks quite like that. You didn't need to be perverse or malicious to read it that way. That was a natural misunderstanding. I think it is a misunderstanding, but these things are very close. So when Luther criticizes this, he's making a point that has a lot of authority in it to a lot of people, but he does so in some pretty intemperate terms. He is challenging quite lucrative financial structures, so there are vested interests that dislike it. And he's also been exploring some of these points about theology of salvation, which means he's pushing his criti criticism rather further than many of those who might otherwise be sympathetic to him would necessarily be willing to go. Crucially, his opponents, especially in the Dominican order that very much see themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy, respond not by debating the theology of salvation with him, which is clearly what he really wants to do, but by seeing this as a matter of obedience. 
of submission to the authority of the church. They pick up on some of his more intemperate statements and say, unless you demonstrate that you're willing to submit to the church on this point, then there's nothing to talk about. This is not a good faith debate about theology. It's a matter of orthodoxy versus heresy. And Luther turns out to have a titanic epochal stubbornness, a willingness to dig in his heels over this sort of point. And it takes nearly two years before he's really painted into a corner on this. And possibly his most able Catholic interlocutor ever that he ever faces, Johann Eck, against whom he goes up in debate in Leipzig in the summer of 1519, effectively forces him to recognize that some of the positions that he, Luther, is holding, have already been authoritatively condemned by a general council of the church, by the, that most authoritative voice of the church a century before. And so Luther is forced to choose between admitting that he's wrong and abandoning his position or saying, no, the general council was wrong. So Luther being Luther, when he's seeing the whole tradition of the church ranged up against him, it says, well, the tradition of the church must be wrong because scripture says this and I can see it and I know I'm right. And this is the same point as he makes when he comes to the Diet of Worms, famously in 1521, which has become the most kind of iconic moment of his career, when he's shown his books and asked, do you repent of the heresies in them? And he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God, unless I can be shown from plain scripture and from reason that I'm wrong, I cannot and will not repent because it is not safe to go against conscience. So he's appealing to his conscience and the word of God as his conscience reads it, as the supreme authority. And his opponents at the time, at the Diet of Worms, are saying, one of them says, this is madness, that if we adopt this policy, that if every heretic will have to be persuaded that they're wrong, then you've got no authority to tell anybody that we're wrong, then it'll be impossible ever to be certain of anything in Christianity again, which I think is exactly the truth. That's precisely how things have worked out. And I think really that division between whether you feel that the institutional certainty and continuity and the humble submission of your own judgment to that is the more persuasive or whether you feel that ultimately your own conscience and the one heroic figure standing for what he himself has come to believe against all the forces of church and empire, which of those two you find more sympathetic ultimately tells you which side you're on in the whole Reformation business. Well, thank you very much for this fascinating and detailed focus on the nature of the debate between the different sides that are lining up in the early 16th century. What I'm struck by is both how intricate the differences are and how huge the consequences of those differences become. And it's been fascinating, particularly to think about the ways in which they seem so close and yet produce this enormous split. They absolutely are close. This is a dispute happening within a close family. And although you know, we look at those early moments of Luther's career and we see the beginning of what we know has been a five-century-long split between Catholics and Protestants, I think it's really important to say this is not something with baked-in inevitability and certainty. The particular parties that we have at the moment, the main confessions, need not have shaken out the way they had. 
there are real possibilities. Very serious people are working very hard for some form of reconciliation or compromise for the first couple of generations. So although Protestants especially have looked back to that moment of the Diet of Worms as this kind of heroic foundation of their tradition, there's a long way to go from that moment to the established Protestant confessions that we know of. So we could talk about that whole process of uncertainty and chaos and how it eventually resolves itself out, but maybe not today. Maybe not today, but if I manage to persuade you yet again to come back, maybe we can talk about the ways in which things worked out during that process of leaving one into two. Many more than two. And <laughs> many more than two, indeed. That's right. You're not just Protestant and Catholic. What Protestant means, what Catholic means, of course, are both very much up for grabs. But for today and for this introduction, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. to my producer Rob Weinberg my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight who edited this episode and thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit we're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors also if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts do sign up to our newsletter Tudor Tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors history is full of extraordinary people the tutors being just a handful in my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.